2: I'm M.G. Lord. And I'm Antonia Cerejido, and we're hosts of L.A. Made
1: from L.A. Studios, telling the stories of bold local innovators. In the new season, we look at Barbie. She's a cultural icon, but what do you really know about her? We hear from Ruth Handler, who invented Barbie, Jack Ryan, who was
2: responsible for her outrageous plastic body, and designer Charlotte Johnson, who created her iconic wardrobe. And we hear from the marketing visionaries and strategists who helped make Barbie the best-selling fashion doll in the world. Stay tuned
1: to hear episode one. Subscribe to LA Made, the Barbie tapes for new episodes available wherever you find great podcasts.
2: On a surprisingly brisk April morning, I walked into a vintage industrial building in the chic Los Angeles Arts District. I went past the doorman, up in the elevator, and rang the doorbell.
1: Thank you for coming. Let's get started. Let's do it.
2: Inside of the apartment awaited a treasure that I knew was going to unlock the origin story of a national icon. The person whose loft I was standing in is someone who L.A.S. listeners are already probably pretty familiar with, the fabulous M.G. Lord, cultural critic, USC professor, and host of LA Made season one, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets.
1: I haven't touched these things since 1994, as you can probably tell.
2: I met MG five years ago, when I was a producer on NPR's Latino USA. She was a source, and immediately, it was a meeting of the minds. We were two cat ladies obsessed with the intersection between feminism and pop culture.
1: Oh, look who's sneaking out.
2: Hi. Gorgeous cat. This was my first time in MG's place, and looking around, it was exactly what you want a cultural archaeologist of sorts's home to look like. Tall ceilings with vertical windows that let in an amber light. Multiple desks for researching and writing. Books crammed into every nook and cranny. And at the center of the room, MG directed me to a box.
1: It's, it, you know, it's a locked fireproof box. And my friend Vanessa found this safe cracker. And, oh my God. And, you know, and lock, and a locksmith and a, and a safe cracker.
2: And in the box, audio tapes. Dozens of them. It's been 30 years since MG has dusted off the box of tapes.
1: I've been so busy, I hadn't really had a chance to open it. I just opened it last night. These were never-before-heard
2: recordings MG made while researching a book she published in the 90s. It was the book on Barbie. Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll.
0: Barbie could never have been designed by anyone but me. What can we do to make her look classy instead of (laughs) cheap-looking? Our marketing people were scared to put out a doll with nipples on Uh her. After I looked on her for a while, she became very real to me. And I think she's real to the children who play with her.
3: It just hit the country like a star.
1: I have this reproduction of the actual page in the New York Times where the review of, of Forever Barbie appeared when it came out. Oh, and that in the corner, by the way, is the, is the original Barbie car. This doll, you, you push her arm back like that, and she sprouts breasts and grows a <laughs> quarter of an inch. And then- And the thing that's so wild is that
2: you played with Barbies and I played with Barbies. And interestingly, neither you nor I are what you would assume a kid who loved Barbie would be like, nor did we
1: particularly go crazy over Barbie, I think. Even as a child, I found her disturbing yet fascinating.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think that's actually, that is exactly the point of view of this whole podcast is that this whole thing is disturbing yet fascinating. Right. I kind of like
1: the Ken's.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the Ken's. I had a Barbie CD-ROM game that I loved. Oh. <laughs> and, no, and my parents were liberal parents who raised their kid to work for National Public Radio, and they were horrified at me playing with Barbies.
1: My mother tried to get ahead of it all by, you know, giving me the one that seemed less icky to her, Midge, the kind of wholesome sidekick with freckles painted on her face, sort of the, the peppermint patty with a Barbie body. But I didn't like Midge.
2: And the other thing that is so wild, other toys like Chatty Cathy or Betsy Wetsy, all of those toys that were like the toy of the year, nobody knows them now. They don't even exist anymore.
1: Barbie endured. She's the one with staying power. She just hangs in there and the rest of them fall away. She's a cultural touchstone.
2: Why do you think she's had staying power over the rest
1: I think there are a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, I bet a marketing person would say it's brand recognition. Someone else might say that it's, it's because of the way that Barbie both shapes and reflects the marketplace. Increasingly, you see this with all the different varieties of Barbie. And there's also a kind of mythic resonance that she has. She's kind of the feminine essence. She's like a goddess archetype, a space-age recasting of a Stone Age fertility totem.
2: The ideas that sort of led to Barbie even coming into being, as we'll explore in this amazing podcast, are things that are still extremely relevant like the same propulsive force that made her big in 1959 in terms of just how people are re-examining what it means to be a woman. Those questions keep being unearthed and talked about, and Barbie morphs along with all of those conversations.
1: Barbie was a toy that was created by women for women to teach women what, for better or worse, was expected of them. I mean, I thought this phenomenon would last And it has. It's 2023 and And we're we're talking. Yeah, we're still talking about it. Yeah, we're hosting this show because this, you know, an incredibly cool, hip young director has decided that this is Barbie's moment.
2: Hey, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Barbie. That is Greta Gerwig's much anticipated Barbie movie.
1: We want to know what it was like in Barbie's very first moment. There have been ups, there have been downs, and clearly this is a decade of Barbie's ascendancy.
2: I mean, Barbie continues to be the queen of the toy market. We dug up some facts just to measure how popular she still is. And worldwide, according to Mattel, more than 100 Barbie dolls are sold every minute. She's the best-selling fashion doll in the world, and Barbie has a 99% name recognition internationally. Over the next three episodes, we'll hear the Barbie story from those who lived it.
1: We'll learn about the innovative marketing strategies aimed at convincing reluctant parents that Barbie would help their rough little girls learn how to be attractive to future husbands.
2: How Mattel adapted when Barbie became a lightning rod for
1: outrage. And how Mattel tried, sometimes unsuccessfully, to keep Barbie relevant.
2: And we'll hear why her inventor's vision for what Barbie could be included
1: almost everything, except a husband and kids. Because Barbie has always been more than a toy. As the movie tagline says, she's everything. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm M.G. Lord. And this is L.A. Made, The Barbie Tapes.
2: So this first episode will be about how Barbie was conceived, and that takes us right to Ruth Handler.
1: Ruth Handler, who invented the doll, was a great rise-fall-redemption story, a classic Hollywood story. What do you mean by that? Ruth started Mattel and created Barbie, yet, due to financial irregularities, she was forced out of the company she founded, nevertheless went on to have a really amazing second career. We'll get to that later. So do you remember your first meeting with Ruth? I first met Ruth at the Hillcrest Country Club across from their penthouse in Century City. Do you remember what she was wearing? Ruth was wearing what Ruth often wore. She was wearing a tracksuit and... And in fact, on the two occasions when I met her, she was wearing a different, like, velour. You know, those, like, the. Uh, you think of them in the early, around 2000, those juicy ones. Yeah, she was yeah. wearing something
2: like that? Yeah, she oh was my wearing, God. like, a, you know, with a little,
1: yeah, and sneakers. We had a really fun lunch, and she narrated her life to me a little bit. And I guess she didn't find me daunting, so she invited me across the street to look through family albums.
3: yeah. And here we are. This is the factory
1: manager. is the, the young woman in there? Antonia, Elliot, her husband, was also part of this conversation. And right away, he got to the heart of the matter.
3: It was a different time. He's going to buy a doll with breasts.
1: For the next several hours over dinner. I, actually, to be honest with I don't really eat much meat. Either. This is fish. Yeah, but no, that's- and with some marital fact-checking... I remember they were tapering off in sales. No, well, you're jumping back in time. You're well, jumping, jumping
3: forward ahead. in time. She's asking when well, I was asking. They
1: told me their story starting back in the 1930s.
3: Well, you've been together forever. When did you, you both You grew up in Denver? Yeah, we met at 16.
1: Ruth Handler was the daughter of Polish-Jewish immigrants. She was the youngest of 10 children. And she fell in love with Elliot, her husband. I mean, he, they were childhood sweethearts. It's sort of tender in that way. Ruth and Elliot were married in 1938. Then they moved to Los Angeles.
3: You know, I was designing lighting fixtures, and she was the secretary at Paramount. We were experimenting with plastics. We started making our own things. I made them, Ruth sold
1: them. Barbie was born in 1941. Their daughter, their and, yeah, actual Barbie, daughter. their actual daughter, was born in 1941.
3: Shortly thereafter, I was drafted into the army.
1: And Ken, their actual son, was born in 1944 during Elliot's uh, stint in the U.S. Army during the war.
2: Ruth was a natural salesperson, but when she got pregnant, it took her out of business.
3: So I stayed home for, from 41 to. 44 and played mother.
1: I love this choice of words. Played mother. It feels really telling. And also maybe why Ruth never let the Barbie doll have a baby or do rough housework, as she called it.
2: Like many women during World War II, Ruth found herself taking on more work. She even dreamed up a company with a family friend, Harold Matson.
3: He was drafted in the army. Matt and I started Mattel.
1: Mattel's first products included a plastic ukulele called the Ukadoodle and a xylophone.
2: There were a number of big toy companies competing for the baby boomers market. Ideal, Hasbro to name a few, but Mattel had something the others didn't. A marketing strategy that put the company in a position to really take off.
0: We the Mary Mouse-kateer, Mouse-kateer. We In
1: 1955, Mattel risked its entire net worth to buy advertising on the Mickey Mouse Club program.
3: It was a big expenditure. It worried this. About $500,000. What was
1: Mattel's?
3: I mean, I've read Mattel's net worth was about $500,000.
1: Mattel was the first toy company to make such a huge investment in direct advertising via television, kind of a new thing, to kids. Oh, my gosh. And this was pre-Barbie. This was pre-Barbie. So what, they, they, what were they selling? They were, selling? they were selling a burp gun. What? <laughs> a burp gun? Yeah.
3: Billy was hunting elephants with his trusty Mattel toy burp gun. That's the only fully automatic cap gun in the world, you know.
2: When you said burp gun, I imagined like a whoopee cushion or something because of the word burp. But in watching this commercial, I'm understanding that the very first toy commercial directed to children was
1: for a very realistic gun.
3: You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell.
1: While the boys were off slaughtering wildlife, Ruth Handler noticed something about how her daughter played with dolls, especially paper dolls.
3: She almost always bought the teenage type or the adult type in watching her play with her little girlfriends, play paper dolls. The doll was a prop through which they were interpreting the world as they saw it, and they were projecting themselves into their dream of their future.
2: The big innovation of Barbie, and it's interesting to me watching the trailer for the movie that's coming out because it's all about this. It even says it in the trailer.
3: There have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls.
2: Barbie was the first, like, aspirational doll. And Ruth came up with that idea. That was her genius. Before Barbie dolls, dolls were baby dolls that little girls would pretend to be the mother of.
3: There was a doll before Barbie. She had a fat tummy. Lily was quite homely, Uh, not pretty, not shapely. And her clothing, she had dressed—she was a dress-up doll.
2: The way that she describes
1: bodies is just kind of— It's kind of shocking. It's pretty vicious.
2: (laughs)
3: But they were full-bellied and pudgy. They had little girls' bodies, and yet you were supposed to pretend that they were teenagers.
1: Perhaps Ruth's thoughts on those chunky baby dolls were in the back of her mind during the Handler's family vacation in 1956.
3: We went to Europe. We went to Lucerne. We saw past a toy store window. And there were a bunch of these dolls dressed in these very European costumes, these European skiosk uh, costumes. And there was a, a swing. One doll was swinging. You know, it, when we saw them, we just loved the way this doll in these windows. So I went in and bought Barbara, one for her and one for me.
2: This doll was the Lily doll. The physical form of Lily is basically identical to the first Barbie. You can see the inspiration because they would look almost identical. But who was Lily,
1: the doll? Oh, Lily was based on a comic character that ran in the Bild Zeitung, which is kind of a downscale German national inquiry type newspaper. And in this one, she's like completely naked in the apartment of a female friend. The friend's sitting there and Lily's holding up a tabloid like the Bill Saitung to cover her naked body. And she says to the friend, we had a fight and he took back all the presents he gave me. Now, that's how Lily operated in the world. You get a sense of... Who she was. Right.
2: She was a woman who, who had her possessions
1: given to her by wealthy men. She was a woman who had sexual encounters with jowly fat cats for money. It, you know, Lily was the emblem of a German woman who had starved and suffered during the war. But as long as there were men with checkbooks, she would not starve and suffer again. Yeah, that's that's a doll for kids. <laughs>
2: Barbie, we know her as a a toy for
1: kids. Like, who was the Lily doll for? It was mostly a gag gift that was bought by men for other men. It's like the mechanics with, like, the women in bikini posters. It's like a 3D pinup almost. And the doll was advertised with all of these provocative ads that were not the kind of ads, you know, you'd see for children. For instance, that one on the swing that Ruth undoubtedly saw I have to assume that maybe she didn't read German because the caption for this ad is something like, Die höchsten Herren haben Lily gern, sort of, gentlemen prefer Lily. And at the bottom of another one, with two dolls holding hands, whether more or less naked, Lily is always discreet. When we return, the Lily doll travels from the sweaty hands of German men to sunny California, where she will emerge as Barbie.
3: The journalists of LAist
0: work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Josie Huang. LAist Chinatown is a neighborhood in flux. I tell the stories of recent Asian-American immigrants and families who've been here for generations.
2: I can never forget where I come
0: from. How they navigate being Asian and American. But her landlord has ordered the tenants, mostly Asian immigrants, to move out so she can renovate the property and how that shapes L.A.'s future.
3: L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism.
1: Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round.
2: MG, this is where the making of the Barbie story, I think, gets really interesting. Because we get to hear from the people who designed her face, her body, and her fabulous clothes. And in going through your magic tape box, it didn't take us long to find a very key player.
1: Look at this. Oh my God, that's Jack Ryan. Oh my God. My late friend, Ella, started doing this work in... 1978 or 9, for a Yale Scholar of the House project. Ella spoke
2: to many in the amazing team that the handlers put together to design the first Barbie, and one of those people was this man named Jack Ryan.
0: At first, our advertising agency looked at the doll, and they were saying, boy, she really looks tough, doesn't she? <laughs> what can we do to make her look classy instead of cheap-looking? She did look like a German streetwalker.
3: uh uh-huh.
1: Who is Jack Ryan? Jack Ryan was a Yale-educated engineer who worked at Raytheon on the Sparrow and Hawk missiles. He was also a notorious playboy.
0: Ruth, her idea was to take this Lily doll Mm -hmm. and just copy it exactly. I was going to Japan. Ruth stuck this (laughs) doll into my attache case and said, see if you can get this copied.
2: At that time, Mattel products designed in California were frequently made in Japan.
1: And in Japan, he supervised the manufacturing of the Barbie doll.
2: Did you
3: work out the actual shape? I mean, is it really the Lily doll? I mean, is it the shape of the Lily doll, but
0: just... Well, they were very reluctant to let me change it very much. Uh Uh-huh. So I changed it as much as I could get away with. I mean, I redesigned her eyes and her hair and her skull and her hairline and her lips and her neck and her shoulders and her breasts
1: jack toned down the doll's makeup made the lips less bull-up. she was slim down her shoulders and got rid of a widow's peak but there was a hitch
0: and each time i would get a half a dozen back there were nipples on the breasts and our marketing <laughs> our marketing people were scared to put out a doll with nipples on Uh the So, every time the masters came from Japan, it was was my duty to take my little fine Swiss file, which they use for working on watches. (laughs) Swiss files are for watch work. And I very daintily filed the nipples off and returned them. And they kept coming (laughs) back with nipples. So finally, after I'd filed them off several times, they got the idea that they were supposed to make it without
1: nipples.
2: The image of Jack Ryan filing off the tiny nipples is so it will be seared in my memory forever.
1: <laughs> Jack would be a designer at Mattel for about two decades. We'll get into some of his most perplexing doll creations later in the series.
2: MG, the next person we found in your tapes is equally memorable and, in some ways, I would say more important. The woman who designed Barbie's first wardrobe, Charlotte Johnson.
0: Just looking at the doll, she is sophisticated. Yeah.
1: Charlotte Johnson. I didn't actually know her, but she sounded amazing. Charlotte was interviewed by my friend and colleague, Ella king Tory, who was a consultant on my book. And in many ways, Charlotte sort of created the first Barbie in the image of herself.
3: When the handlers came to you to help dress and design Mm -hmm, the mm dresses for the doll, what had you been doing at that time? Well,
0: I worked for many years in New York, Uh
3: in seventh and eighth Mm -hmm. Avenue. What was it like designing the dress? I mean, did they give you the, the,
0: the first line? No, no, they didn't they, give me anything. They just said, go. They go put me on a plane and said, do it over
2: there. Uh-huh. She didn't just design the outfits. She negotiated deals with the Japanese manufacturers.
1: She was autonomous in her 40s, I guess, by then. She lived in Frank Lloyd Wright's Imperial Hotel, which also no longer exists, and negotiated these contracts. You know, it's not even that easy today for a woman executive in Japan. I just can't even imagine what it must have been like in 1957.
0: I don't think the company really had any plans of how it would work out. It's a matter of keeping myself busy over there they just, just kept designing. I just kept designing yeah. now. Well, the first line, I mean, I, I it's just beautiful. I know that first year I made that black dress with that fishtail rough around the bottom. Oh. It <laughs> looked like someone uh, performing, you know? And at that time, there was a singer named Hildegard at the Waldorf who, who was um, the leading chantice, you know? So she always carried a long silk handkerchief. And so I made a pink handkerchief, right. you know, for Barbie to carry.
2: So body, check. Wardrobe, check. How about the doll's name?
1: The story is that Barbie is named for Ruth's daughter, Barbara, but actually, Barbara wasn't called Barbie. She was called, wait for it, Babs.
3: <laughs> our first attempt had been for Babs. Because that was the nickname that we applied to her. We tried to get clearance on Babs, and our patent lawyer told us to use something else. So we, I asked about Barbie, and he says, go ahead on that one. So that was it.
2: So Ruth has her Barbie doll who has this, like, hot body and these cool clothes. But there was another thing that Mattel was really honing in on was marketing. How did they figure out how to market
1: the doll? Well, Ruth knew she needed a focus group. She needed market research. And she hired the most cutting-edge, insightful market researcher, you know, in all of Manhattan, Ernst Dichter a real Viennese psychoanalyst. He conducted research with dozens of parents and hundreds of kids. Kids loved her. Parents loathed her. The report quotes a housewife and mother of three. Quote, I know little girls want dolls with high heels, but I object to that sexy costume. Pointing to the sheer pink negligee. I wouldn't walk around the house like that. I don't like that influence on my little girl. If only they would let children remain young a little longer, said the mother of an eight-year-old. Incredible. How'd you get that? Well, when I began my work, he was no longer alive, but his widow still lived in the castle. They all had castles (laughs) in his castle in Croton-on-Hudson, and she let me go up by train. It took two days to hand copy with a pencil everything in the report, which is why I'm so attached to reading it aloud now. That's incredible. These women hate the doll because she's such a sex object, but because of the culture— one of the things that mothers, I believe, in that generation had to do was groom the female child to get a meal ticket, a.k.a. a husband. And here, this was this was the breakthrough. You know, he located their Achilles heel and formulated a plan to exploit it. One woman who had found Barbie way too racy changed her mind when she heard her 8-year-old daughter comment, "'She's so well-groomed, Mommy.'" Out of this came Dichter's strategy, convinced mom that Barbie will make, quote, a poised little lady out of her raffish, unkempt, possibly boyish child. Remind mom what she believes deep down but dares not express. Better her daughter should appeal in a sleazy way to a man than be unable to attract one at all. This is part of the darkness.
2: So that is like the whole thing. They were like, this is the setup for Barbie. This is what she looks like. We're presenting her in this way where she's teaching young girls how to be attractive to one day acquire a husband. Right,
1: But and and Charlotte, you know, I mean, the, the great thing about Barbie is so many things get projected on this piece of plastic. Charlotte was doing exactly the opposite thing. Charlotte was making sure from the very first set of outfits that Barbie had a way to make a living Busy gal came with the fashion sketchbook. It was like Charlotte herself. People were already transposing what they wanted onto Barbie. I think that's what makes this hunk of plastic so fascinating. Right. The ones who hate it project something onto it. The ones who fall in love with it project something else onto it. It's a hunk of plastic.
2: Okay, so this hunk of plastic... This fuzzy
1: hunk of (laughs) plastic. ...has her debut in... It was March of 1959 that Toy Fair happened. All the little booths and displays were kind of fussed over by, by female attendants in tight clothing, you know. So Toy Fair wasn't a bunch of kids. It was adults. Yeah, men. it wasn't a bunch of kids and it wasn't men and women. It was mostly men acquiring for big stores like Sears. Let's hear Ruth describe how it yeah. went at the Toy Fair.
3: Fully, 50% of the buyers who came to Toy Show rejected the doll and would not order it. I'm really very disappointed that buyers refused to buy it. We cut back
2: on our production plans as
1: a result Uh. of that. Those reluctant toy buyers assumed that mothers would run like hell from a doll with breasts. They didn't want to sell a sexy toy.
3: But the thing that really happened is that when we started to ship and it got on the counter, The consumers just walked away with it so fast the stores didn't know what happened.
1: Kids started clamoring for it when they saw the commercials. Barbie, you're beautiful. You make me. And when school is out, when they have more time to clamor and watch television, that's when the sales really took off.
2: They sold $300,000 in that first year. It just hit. The
3: country like a star. Beautiful Barbie, I'll make believe that I am you. You can
2: tell swell. Barbie's wearing a wedding dress at the end, and even the words in the song in the jingle says, "One day I'll be just like you." I mean, it's literally out of Dicter's research. He's saying the whole point of this is to look up to being a bride, a blushing bride.
1: For starters, she's got the dress, but there's no husband. So the next thing that everybody, you know, I mean, there's all those letters from mothers and children uh, because a woman without a husband in 1960 was a failure. So they had to make a boyfriend doll. They had to make an accessory. Barbie, the famous teenage fashion model doll by Mattel, felt that this was to be a special night. And then it happened. She met Ken and somehow next week the introduction of Ken and his controversial balls. <laughs> that's that's going to be a good one. And as
2: society changed through the 1960s, how could Barbie manage to stay relevant? All this and much more next week on LA Made: The
1: Barbie Tapes.
2: Made the Barbie Tapes is hosted by me, Antonia Cerejido.
1: And me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Elias Studios.
2: Shayna Naomi Krocmal is our vice president of podcasts. Catherine Mailhouse is the director of content development.
1: Our producer is Minju Park. Shelley Lewis is our writer and editor. Fact-checking on this episode by Allie Bianco. This episode was sound designed by Antonia Cerejido. That's me. And Minju Park. Scott Kelly is our mix engineer. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. Sarah Burnett and Ali Bianco are our interns. Our
2: website, Elias.com,
1: is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the
2: digital and marketing teams at Elias
1: Studios. The marketing team at Elias Studios created our branding.
2: LA Made, The Barbie Tapes is a production of Elias Studios.